millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Sometimes it would be helpful when people in authority or experts are asked about their views on a difficult topic would simply answer, I don't know. Or at least they could stop pretending that they know a lot more than they know. And this is something we've seen throughout 2020 as the COVID pandemic has spread around the world. So often people in positions of authority or observers like you and me knew a whole lot less than we thought we did going in. In this episode, what we have learned and unlearned about COVID from scientists, doctors, public health experts, and philosophers. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? With any luck, 2021 will be a year of recovery from this COVID pandemic. We have two vaccines and more to come, and we should expect a rebound for the economy. Fingers crossed. Years after the worst is past, however, COVID-19 may lead to sweeping changes. Predicting what will happen may be folly, but we have learned a lot about this virus in the past year. And that's what this show is about. You know, it's been really interesting looking back at all these shows, Richard. We got on this really early. You were down in Australia in February and you you sent me an email, said, I think we should do something on this new virus. And you found epidemiologist Kylie Carville of the Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity in Melbourne. And it was so fascinating to go back and see what one of the top experts on a disease like this, how she saw it at the time. Yes, this is just as scientists were beginning to understand the nature of the outbreak and before COVID-19 was declared a pandemic. When we say coronavirus, we're actually referring to a family of viruses. And I think that's really important because there's been some stuff in the media about, oh, I saw this thing about coronavirus and I saw that thing about coronavirus. Coronavirus is a family. There's lots of them. I've had coronavirus. I've had a regular coronavirus that circulates among humans normally. Don't have to sit back. <laughs> <laughs> um, but a lot of coronaviruses circulate in animals as well. And that's where we think this one has come from. So this one's new and that's why there's the concern. The SARS epidemic in 2003, which mostly affected Asia, never became a global pandemic, but it did kill nearly 800 people before that version of coronavirus was contained. It's different both in terms of the virus and in terms of how we're responding. So it's about 
the genetic code says it's about 80% similar to SARS. Um, we don't know everything about this new novel coronavirus yet, but it does seem likely that it is less severe. So with SARS, the death rate depended on your age and whether you had an underlying medical condition and so on, but roughly around 10%. At the moment, with this new virus, we think it's 2 to 3%, which is substantially lower. How does it compare with something like the flu, which kills tens of thousands of people every year in the United States alone? That's a really great question. Um, so flu can vary. So some years it's not that bad, some years it's worse. So it's probably a little bit worse maybe than a bad flu. But at this stage... We can't be 100% certain because when we talk about the death rate, we say how many people have died over how many people got it. We don't know yet with this new coronavirus how many people might be getting it but aren't getting that sick and they're not turning up to a doctor and being counted. Again, that was recorded back in February with Australian epidemiologist Kylie Carvel. There was a huge amount at that time that scientists didn't know about COVID. In June, we spoke with oncologist, bioethicist, and healthcare expert, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, well-known policy expert connected with the Obama administration, and now picked by President-elect Biden as a member of his COVID advisory board. He wrote a book called, Which Country Has the World's Best Healthcare? And we had a really interesting conversation with him. And you asked him, what are the greatest lessons learned about COVID since the pandemic began? Well, I think the greatest lesson is that public health measures really work. And if you implement them stringently and seriously, you can get to the top of the curve and come back down the other end of the curve. And you can actually slowly and methodically open up your economy because you can identify outbreaks and easily do contact tracing and isolation. Um, unfortunately, in general, we haven't done that in the United States. Other countries have done that much more successfully, and we have been unable to do these kind of stringent measures. Speaking of COVID and the fact that you have studied other countries' health systems in such detail, are there two or three countries that you did look at that have performed especially well in this current emergency? Yes, and the standout country is Taiwan. They have performed the best in the world, in my humble opinion. Uh, they have less than 500 cases and just seven deaths. It could have been a disaster in Taiwan. They're less than 100 miles off China. A million Taiwanese work in China, and there are hundreds of flights daily between Taiwan and China, and yet they avoided disaster. And there are many elements to that. One is they're very suspicious of China. SARS taught them to be suspicious of infectious agents arising from China. Second, they have a face mask culture, as a colleague of mine said. Um, and so wearing face masks to prevent infection is something very common in Taiwan. And that goes a long way, as we're now learning. And the third most important thing, which relates to my study, is that they actually have this health card. And the health card alerts the Ministry of Health anytime someone visits the doctor, why they visited, what the charges were in terms of tests and treatments. And they use that information to link it to the immigration and custom information and allow them to identify people who've been to Wuhan, China. It also allowed them to identify people who had respiratory symptoms. 
but were negative for influenza. And therefore, they could suggest to their doctor, test these people. They've been to Wuhan or test these people. They have respiratory symptoms. Maybe they have COVID. And that really rapidly allowed them to identify everyone and to tamp down the spread quite rapidly. And that health card is part of their healthcare system, not part of a public health infrastructure. Dr. Zeke Emanuel, who singled out Taiwan for praise, for good reason. Today, the number of deaths in Taiwan from COVID is just seven, with only 766 recorded cases. Total U.S. cases are 18 million. Yeah, and we were really happy to hear him say that about Taiwan because in the spring, we interviewed Samson Ellis, the Taiwan bureau chief for Bloomberg News. We started on a personal note. So I don't think it's really an exaggeration to say that there is nowhere else in the world I would rather be right now than Taiwan. Okay, so Samson, what did Taiwan do differently from other countries, not only the US and Europe, but also in Asia? I think there are three main things that uh, Taiwan did particularly well. First of all, early intervention. Secondly, there's a very high level of medical expertise and competence at the very top of the government here. And thirdly, Taiwan has an excellent healthcare system. Is another reason, though, trust in, in the government? Now, that undoubtedly has played uh, a role in this as well. Taiwan is the most transparent government in the world, according to rankings by Open Global Source Index. And, and you know, that leads to a situation where, by and large, people believe what the government is saying. And that trust also means it's kind of a two-way street. One of the things that Taiwan has done is really rely on the public to provide a lot of data. And it seems that people are willing to call in to the toll-free numbers if they think they might be infected and volunteer a lot of information to the government. Not everyone around the world would be so happy doing that. That is true. And that that is, to a certain extent, a, a factor of uh, you know the transparency coming from the government or product of a very good healthcare system. You know, it does not cost much money to go and see the doctor. And also the the vice president in Taiwan is an epidemiologist. He was the man who was in charge of the fight against SARS in Taiwan 17 years ago. So, you know, you could not ask for a, to have a better person at the top of government right now. You know, his experiences 17 years ago when he was health minister did lead to Taiwan making a lot of improvements to stuff like contact tracing, which is absolutely critical at a time like this. But then also creating regulatory changes that allowed uh, government agencies to share information more freely with each other, whether it be immigration, whether it be customs, whether it be the telecoms companies. Uh, you know, the government here does track your phone. If, if you've come back from overseas and you're put in quarantine, you have to sign a waiver and the government will be tracking your phone to see where you are and see if you're stepping out your front door. Could you explain the term contact tracing? So that way, when you do get a a new confirmed case, then you go through everybody that person has been in touch with, quite simply to work out, number one, who may be infected them, but then also who maybe you then went on to infect. Taiwan has universal healthcare coverage, in fact, a single payer system. To what extent did that help in fighting coronavirus? 
So without doubt, that had a very big role in uh, helping contain the, the spread of the virus. Number one, people are not afraid to go and see their doctor. They know that the costs are going to be absolutely manageable. Uh, and number two, doctors are the front line, right? They are the first points of contact for anybody usually getting this disease. So they're the first people to flag, hey, there's somebody with a fever, there's somebody with a runny nose, there's somebody showing other symptoms. So having those people, they're feeding information into the um, broader system is absolutely crucial and getting people tested very quickly as well, which again, happens quite quickly in Taiwan. Samson Ellis of Bloomberg News in Taiwan. This island country is only 80 miles from mainland China. Hear the whole interview with Samson on episode 250 on our website. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. Coming up, a silver lining in the COVID crisis and what ancient philosophy can teach us about living through a pandemic. We have a brand new newsletter this week that looks at future episodes and why our thinking about this podcast and how our thinking about this podcast has evolved in almost 300 episodes. Please subscribe and support us and send ideas. The website is howdowefixit.me. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, more of what we learned about COVID and healthcare in general during 2020. During the spring, we spoke with Dr. Vivian Lee. She's a longtime healthcare CEO and now president of Verily, the healthcare data company connected with Google. She draws on deep experience of the public and private sectors to call for pragmatic solutions. They involve ending the current fee-for-service model and instead focusing on performance or healthcare outcomes. Many of the challenges that we're facing with COVID in the U.S. are a reflection of some of the underlying flaws of our healthcare system. The fact that our system is predominantly fee-for-service has meant that we have focused on things that generate fees. And so we haven't invested in the public health infrastructure that most other countries have. We are trying to make important steps towards that now. Our county and state health departments are trying to coordinate much more effectively to, for example, share information on where lab tests are available, where's the prevalence of disease and how it's moving across this country to be able to monitor, for example, the effect of reopening the economy. So one is an investment in 
in public health and public health infrastructure. The second is we really need to have this payment model enable our health systems to be more robust. The fact that in April we laid off a one and a half million doctors and nurses and healthcare workers, knowing full well that in the next few months, many of these procedures that have been deferred, whether they're cancer treatments or heart surgeries, those patients are needed to come back in and get care. And we've just laid off one and a half million of our workforce. We, we don't have a robust or resilient healthcare system, which most countries have. And then finally, I think we have to recognize that healthcare and a better health system is key to our nation's readiness to face any kind of challenge, not even just a healthcare challenge. And that readiness is a part of what's inherent in our military system. We need to have that same readiness mindset when it comes to healthcare for the whole country. Vivian Lee, who says our system is inefficient and wasteful. In America, we spend at least twice as much on healthcare as other industrial nations, and she says we get worse results. But lessons are being learned during this current crisis. One of the most helpful signs of progress is related to technology. The silver lining of the COVID-19 crisis is that we've seen a rapid shift to alternative ways of caring for people outside of the four walls of the clinic and the hospital that can lead to better access to health care for everyone. And those include telemedicine, telehealth. And by making those available, we're seeing that we can really care for patients outside of the traditional healthcare environments, which I hope will be beneficial for those who ordinarily really have difficulty getting access to care whether it's because of economic reasons or because of geography and where they live. You've been learning some new lessons in, in your job, haven't you, about uh, the importance of technology in healthcare. You now work for Google's healthcare uh, firm, Verily. What's your mission there? We are really focused on making healthcare information available to all in a way that's really actionable. One example is a virtual diabetes clinic, which is called Onduo. Ordinarily, for a person with type 2 diabetes, you'd want to check your blood sugars and keep your blood sugars under control. And you might have to prick your finger a few times a day just to check your blood sugars. So one of the technologies that we built is a continuous glucose monitor. It's about the size of a key fob, and you put it on your arm or on your abdomen for a couple of weeks. And what it does is measures your blood sugars 24-7 and transmit it to your smartphone so you can actually see the tracings. And then the most important thing that influences your blood sugar is your diet and exercise. And ordinarily, we might ask you to keep a food log. In this case, because of the technology, you can just take pictures of your meals and snacks. And so you can start to see the association between what you're eating and what it's doing to your blood sugars. Dr. Vivian Lee, author of an interesting new book about healthcare called The Long Fix. Next, one of my favorite subjects, as you know, Richard, what we can all learn about living through a pandemic from philosophy. We go in pursuit of ageless wisdom with journalist and author Eric Weiner, author of the new book, The Socrates Express in Search of Life Lessons from Dead Philosophers. Okay, Eric, what lessons do these dead philosophers teach us? Because it's been helping people for about two or 3,000 years. Um, the original 
meaning of philosophos, uh, philosophy is philosophos from the ancient Greek, which means one who loves wisdom. And um, that's what philosophy started as, people who wanted to uh, acquire some wisdom to help them with exactly the sort of times that we find ourselves in right now. And, you know, we, we hear on the news a lot about how we're living in unprecedented times. Well, we're not, really. Um, humanity has endured actually much worse than this, as bad as it is. And um, from the time of the ancient Greeks and before, they've been contemplating how best to cope with difficult, crazy times like ours. Eric, you wrote a great piece for the Wall Street Journal the other day called Philosophy for a Time of Crisis. And in it, you said, COVID-19 has humbled us, unmoored us. Nothing seems certain anymore. Good. What do you mean good? Because if, if you believe, as Socrates uh, did, that uh, all philosophy begins with wonder uh, and with a kind of unmooring of ourselves and wondering what you're doing with your life, then, um, then it is good in that it, it shakes us out of our routine. Um, it's not good, of course, for in a health way or or in a certainty way or an ease of living way, but it's good in the philosophical sense um, that you're starting to question your assumptions. And that's that was Socrates' big bugaboo, is that people walked around with all these assumptions in their head and they never stopped to question how they got there and what they were doing there. And, you know, the oracle at Delphi had famously proclaimed Socrates the wisest man in Athens. He thought, that can't be true. I don't know anything. But he concludes, at least I know what I don't know. And too many of us don't know what we don't know. Which brings us right back to the beginning of this episode. Most of us don't know what we don't know. Maybe it's time to replace confidence with a little more curiosity and wonder. Humility. You know, you can look at the arc of this past year. We've gone from the expert consensus that this would be a manageable crisis. We, we have the tools to address this pandemic to, well, at least we can turn to philosophy for some solace in these difficult times. Coming next on How Do We Fix It? our recommendations for 2020. Okay, Jim, this is hard. Uh, my book of the year, <laughs> and I read a bunch, is A Paragon by the wonderful Irish writer Colm McCann, and favorite TV series, the third season of the hilarious uh, French show Call My Agent about celebrities and the people who represent them. My recommendation is not one work. It's a growing platform for a lot of the kind of thinkers that we have on how do we fix it. These are people who have individual interesting things to say that don't always fit rigid ideological corridors. It's the platform Substack. It's basically a, an ecosystem of newsletters people sign up for and they pay a subscription fee. And we've seen a lot of really, I think, some of the most important thinkers of our time in journalism have left their established outlets. Andrew Sullivan left New York Magazine. Suzanne Moore left The Guardian. Glenn Greenwald left Intercept, which he started. Matt Taibbi is also on the platform, former Rolling Stone writer. This is a blossoming of real free speech, open inquiry, debate. We need more of this, and Substack is a great place to find it. 
So we go to substack.com to find out more? Yes. Okay. And there's a link to this on our website. Next, our conversation. Jim, we've all learned so much about coronavirus, including many surprises during this past year. You wrote a recent article for Commentary Magazine called, It Could Have Been So Much Worse. Yes, this is my monthly column and commentary. And I was thinking about the research I've done on disasters. In disasters, there's this theory that a particularly hard hit to one aspect of our social and and infrastructure systems in our country could lead to a cascading collapse. For example, if we had a blackout that lasted a month over much of the country, our food delivery, our fuel delivery, our heat, our water, all that stuff might shut down as well. There have been studies that say, you know, you could have situations like that in which tens of millions of people could die. A pandemic is one of the classic precipitating factors that people look at So as bad as this has been and and as horrific as it's been and the tragedy for so many people, it's worth looking back at how much of our society actually kept working. And we didn't have this cascading collapse. We had a lot of of sickness and death and, and, and economic disruption. But aside from occasional lack of toilet paper or in our area, yeast for making bread, the store shelves didn't go empty. The gas stations had fuel. The electricity stayed on. The internet stayed on. When 40% of Americans suddenly started working from home and the demand for bandwidth shot up dramatically, all of these companies were able to meet the demand with just a handful of exceptions to this unprecedented shift in how people use the internet. So I think it, as at the same time that we look at how bad this has been and how to prevent it for the future, we should also recognize that a lot of basic elements of our economy and our infrastructure and our society are actually quite robust. That's so well put. And then the other remarkable thing is that vaccines have been developed with such speed. And we've seen a a great example of private-public partnership working with with Operation Warp Speed when it comes to um, pharmaceutical companies developing drugs at a pace that uh, no one expected. No one expected. Back in the spring, uh, Anthony Fauci was predicting that it would probably take about two years to get a vaccine. And we'd be we'd consider ourselves pretty lucky if we had a vaccine that was 50 or 60% effective. Well, now we have two vaccines that are 95% effective in less than a year, twice as fast as predicted and almost twice as effective as predicted. That's really good news. And as you say, it's a public-private partnership. I think this is a great model for other areas. We have so much criticism of capitalism today. This is all the fault of capitalism. In fact, no, it's hard to imagine any governmental system mustering the resources to do what these private pharmaceutical companies have done so quickly, but they also couldn't have done it on their own. They needed these huge infusions of investment from the government, billions of dollars, particularly in guaranteeing them that we would we would buy the doses long before we knew whether, say, the Pfizer drug was going to actually work. The U.S. government was ordering, I believe, initially it was 100 million doses. So they could afford to take the risk. 
to start manufacturing the drug before it was done with clinical trials. Your article was called, It Could Have Been So Much Worse. True. But the subtext for much of our show is it could have been so much better. Our our national leaders, uh, including the president, have sent out very confusing messages about the need for masks and social distancing. And this may be obvious, but still, I think, needs to be said that with better leadership and, and more thorough coordination from the federal government, from the president, from uh, the administration in general, tens of thousands of people who died from COVID would have been alive today. So I think we have been very poorly led. Yeah, there's no question that the leadership from the White House was was pretty abysmal, with you know, with some exceptions. You know, the, the system they developed to manage the inventory of of ventilators, for example, much criticized, actually turned out to work really well. The um, Operation Warp Speed will go down in history as a as a really effective government intervention in the course of a crisis. But the communications, the the mixed signals, the grandstanding by Trump was all very counterproductive. It's how do we fix it? I'm Richard Davies. Our year-end episode on what we learned about COVID. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we promise it's all going to be sunshine and rainbows in 2021. (laughs) Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. Thanks, Miranda, for always making us sound better than we really are before you start editing us. And this is a production of Davies Content. Find out more about how we make podcasts and could potentially help you if you have one at DaviesContent.com. And as always, thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.